Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. This week, we are going to go over some new APTA fact sheets. These fact sheets have either been updated or added since our last season of Pushing Pediatrics. To access the fact sheets, you can either go to the APTA Pediatrics website or just Google Pediatric APTA Fact Sheets. These are a free resource for you. Let's begin by talking about our first fact sheet for this week, Considerations for Cranial Molding in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Some characteristics of the neonatal skull include that it is highly soft and pliable. There are eight sutures and fixed fontanelles. Bone mineralization and formation is completed in late gestation, and there is an increased proportion of collagen in neonatal bone compared to mature bone. The fact sheet then goes on to describe the common cranial molding deformities in hospitalized infants. These include dochleocephaly, which is also called scaphocephaly, plagiocephaly, and brachycephaly. In dochleocephaly, there is a symmetric bilateral narrowing of the skull. In plagiocephaly, there is a unilateral occipital flattening, anterior progression of the ear on the same side as the flattened occiput, and varying degrees of ipsilateral frontal and contralateral posterior parietal bossing forming a parallelogram shape. This shape is what is commonly seen with torticollis. Brachycephaly is when the skull is disproportionately wide compared to its length. We recommend taking a look at the fact sheet as there are images and additional measurements and information about each of these deformities. Next, the fact sheet lists out risk factors for cranial deformities. Risk factors for all types of cranial molding deformities include restrictive uterine environment, prematurity, trauma at birth, lack of bone mineralization, torticollis, paralysis, neurological deficits, and restricted positioning. Risk factors for dochleocephaly include prematurity, low birth weight, increased length of time requiring respiratory support, 
and frequent prone and sideline positioning. Risk factors for plagiocephaly include positional preference, male sex, and multiple births. Risk factor for brachycephaly include prolonged supine positioning, limited head mobility, and developmental delay. The fact sheet then goes on to the prognosis for each type of cranial molding deformity. Doclicocephaly has been associated with plagiocephaly, motor asymmetries, delayed reaching skills, decreased midline control, myopia, and shifts in cortical structures of the brain. The presence of doclicocephaly at 32 to 34 weeks postmenstrual age is correlated with higher rates of PT referral at three to four month NICU follow-ups. Plagiocephaly and brachycephaly are associated with torticollis, potential need for the helmet or a band, reduced motor, language, cognitive, and adaptive behavioral scores at three years of age, developmental delay, delayed psychomotor and auditory processing disorders, and abnormal dentition with facial feature asymmetries. Recommendations are then provided for cranial molding. Some assessments that are recommended include the cranial index, the cranial vault asymmetric index, and the Children's Hospital of Atlanta Plagiocephaly Severity Scale, the Argenta Scale for Deformational Plagiocephaly, and the TIMP and NICU Network Neurobehavioral Scale, as they include symmetrical movement and orientation, which can be impacted by cranial molding deformities. For infants less than 28 weeks postmenstrual age, midline alignment is encouraged using positioning aids. It is recommended to introduce a variety of positions when physiologically and developmentally appropriate. Encourage skin-to-skin holding with a parent and also collaborate with nursing and the medical team to develop an individualized positioning plan. For infants between 28 and 32 weeks postmenstrual age, continue to provide a variety of positions and optimize midline. Continue to encourage skin-to-skin and holding as the infant tolerates and increase the proportion of time that the infant spends in supine as compared to prone and sideline in order to increase tolerance and to provide increased weight-bearing to the posterior head. For infants greater than 32 weeks postmenstrual age, begin the transition to the back to sleep program. Continue to encourage skin to skin contact and holding at the bedside and incorporate the use of infant swings and bouncers to provide additional positioning variety as tolerated. For children with docleocephaly, use supine midline positioning to allow weight bearing on the posterior aspect of the skull. Use positioning aids to prevent hyperflexion of the cervical spine and maintain a neutral position of the neck. Ensure symmetry of the infant's body and environment, and for older infants, facilitate postural control interventions that activate and strengthen anterior cervical musculature. For infants with plagiocephaly, alternate the head of bed orientation environmental setup and increase weight bearing to the non-preferred side. For infants with brachycephaly, implement frequent positional changes as tolerated and use subtle changes in mattress incline with towel rolls or bed position as tolerated. Use positioning aids to optimize symmetry and maintain midline alignment of extremities and provide opportunities for free movement. The next two fact sheets that we are going to go over, we are really excited about. 
cyanotic and acyanotic heart defects. These are two separate fact sheets for these heart defects and are very helpful. It is short and sweet and gives you clinical pearls of things to remember, and it even has images for you. We are going to go over the fact sheets, but really only mention what the heart defect is and what some clinical pearls are about it. Let's start with acyanotic defects. An acyanotic defect impacts the normal flow of the blood through the body, including left to right shunting of the blood through the heart and outflow obstructions. The first type of acyanotic defect is the atrial septal defect. This is a hole in the atrial septum that allows blood flow from the left atrium to the right atrium. Clinical pearls include that the timing of the repair depends on many factors, including the child's size, age, and severity of the defect, but typically occurs before the age of five. You may see children who have not undergone repair in which you should monitor for signs of worsening clinical status. A ventricle septal defect is when there is a hole between the right and the left ventricles. Clinical pearls include that infants may have trouble feeding, failure to thrive, and severe respiratory distress. Eisenmenger syndrome occurs when severe pulmonary pressure exceeds systemic pressures, resulting in a shunting to switch from right to left. You should also watch for respiratory distress, diaphoresis, and for signs of congestive heart failure in children who have not undergone repair. Atrioventricular septal defect results from failure of the endocardial cushions to form, which separate the central part of the heart near the tricuspid and mitral valves. A common issue after repair is a leaky mitral valve, allowing backflow of blood. This may also lead to increased work on the heart. Another clinical pearl is that infants may have failure to thrive and developmental delays. Patent ductus arteriosus occurs when the ductus arteriosus remains open. There is a high incidence of this in infants with prematurity due to hypoxemia. Infants may have associated issues due to the hypoxia, such as interventricular hemorrhage and necrotizing enterocolitis. Surgery near the aortic arch may result in a risk of thoracic duct injury and vocal cord paralysis. Coarctation of the aorta involves narrowing of a portion of the aorta, obstructing blood flow from the left ventricle. Hypertension can be seen due to the backup of blood flow into the left ventricle. The child may have limited upper extremity range of motion associated with thoracotomy. Pulmonary stenosis is the narrowing of the pulmonary valve and or a restricting of the right ventricular outflow tract. Aortic stenosis is the narrowing of the aortic valve opening or narrowing below the valve between the left ventricle of the heart and the aorta. One clinical pearl for both of these conditions is that you should consider the risk of endocarditis due to valve surgery. The fact sheet then goes on to list some key considerations. A few include promotion of safe physical activity is important, tummy time may be limited after a sternotomy, PT intervention should focus on different aspects of functioning during the pre- and post-operative phases, and continued research is still recommended. Children with congenital heart defects are at risk for functional impairments, but some children with acyanotic defects may have no restrictions. 
Next, onto cyanotic heart defects. Remember, these are on two different fact sheets, so make sure you download both. Cyanotic defects are defects allowing the mixing of oxygenated and non-oxygenated blood. These defects involve right-to-left shunting, where blood will bypass the lungs and return to the body. The first cyanotic defect is tetralogy of Fallot. This is the most common complex defect. It is a malformation consisting of an opening in the wall between the lower heart chambers or a ventricular septal defect, a narrowing of the pulmonary valve and the muscular area beneath it, a thickening of the right ventricle, and an abnormal position of the aorta. Watch out for TET spells, dyspnea, and increased cyanosis. During a TET spell, have patients bring their knees to their chest to restore systemic vascular resistance. Transposition of the great arteries is a malformation in which the aorta arises from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arises from the left ventricle. Individuals may have edema and decreased left ventricular function. They may also have decreased exercise capacity with aging. Tricuspid atresia occurs when the tricuspid valve fails to fully form, impeding the heart's ability to connect the right atrium with the ventricle. Infants may present with failure to thrive and patients will have decreased oxygen saturations at baseline and with activity. Pulmonary atresia occurs when the pulmonary valve fails to form. Infants may present with developmental delays and poor feeding skills. Infants without a ventricular septal defect often have decreased oxygen saturations. Truncus arteriosus occurs when the aorta and pulmonary artery do not separate, resulting in a single arterial trunk arising from the heart. Infants may have a pulmonary hypertension crisis and present with developmental delays and failure to thrive. This is a common defect found in infants with trisomy 21. Total anomalous pulmonary venous return occurs when the pulmonary veins do not connect to the left atrium and instead connect to the coronary sinus of the right atrium or to systemic veins. Infants may present with failure to thrive. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome occurs when the left ventricle is underdeveloped with a non-functional mitral or aortic valve as well as a hypoplastic aorta. Surgeries are considered palliative and not corrective. Infants may be poor oral feeders and have developmental delays, delayed exercise capacity, and neurological and behavioral issues. They are considered interstage between surgeries. Please take a look at these fact sheets as there is a lot of very valuable information on them. They go significantly more into depth than we will hear on this podcast, So take the time to look through the fact sheets while you are studying this material. I think these fact sheets would go really well with the book material because I think that they're just a little bit more concise than the book. And I think sometimes the book got just a little overwhelming with these. So I think the fact sheets kind of almost help break it down into a little bit more of a manageable chunk to study. I would definitely agree. And PCS Advantage also has a resource on this as well. But I think the fact sheet has a, it's just a great way to just look at 
one to two pages of the pictures, some brief information and clinical pearls on it. So it kind of, like Sheila just said, is a little more concise and a little bit easier to study than some of the more in-depth materials that we are also using. Definitely. All right. We will see you guys next time. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.